Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence it is full of events and narrations that represent European history as a microcosm. Presenting this episode's random fact about Cologne. Cologne today is a metropolis. This podcast alone tells you this every three weeks what important events for European history have already happened here in the first four centuries of its existence. Though a little bit of provincial romanticism in this big city can be found in many corners today. For more than 22 years there was a potato pancake stand on the main station forecourt in Cologne. Since 1982 all travelers and tourists therefore immediately got two impressions of the city as soon as they left the station building. First of course the magnificent architecture of the gothic Cologne Cathedral, the city's landmark. This second impression was not so pleasant for many. It was the smell of the potato pancake stand on a station forecourt that sold the delicacies fried in the dripping oil. In the end over 800,000 pieces per year were sold. In 2004 however after 22 years it was over. During the redesign of the square the small golden yellow booth was torn down by workers with hammers and iron bars. It even made it into the newspaper because everybody knew this stand. Residents and businesses in the entire district breathed a visible sigh of release in the truest sense of the word. I'm sure I feel the same as you do. Many childhood memories are connected to your own senses. And I too can still smell the potato pancakes every time I stand on the forecourt of Cologne's main train station. Even 16 years after they disappeared from there forever. Okay. This time it was a slightly longer anecdote, but so be it. Let's hit the intro. In the last episode, the short Frankish rule over the Roman colony of Cologne ended after only one year in 356. And that probably extremely bloodlessly. The Franks probably returned the city to the Romans without a fight. In return, this Small group of Franks were allowed to settle in the Cologne lowland as allies of Rome. In this episode we want to look as far as possible from the sources to see how late antique Cologne developed at the end of the 4th century. Many are tempted to see the end of Roman rule in late antiquity both in general and regionally as a stringent downward spiral that was ultimately to culminate in the fall of Rome in the year 475. Often cited here are the constant decline of Roman institutions and even further weakening of direct control in the provinces and general de-urbanization. However, that there are often regional and distinct differences, well, that is often not an issue. And surprisingly, the area around Cologne was supposed to remain comparatively quiet in the late 4th century. Comparatively. Because the real storm, the real threats to the Roman and also Germanic world from outside now came increasingly from the east of the empire and from the Danube region in today's Hungary. Therefore I unfortunately see myself forced again to lead overall Roman developments which we need, however to break them down to the level of the city of Cologne in late Roman times. 
but let us stay on the Rhine for the time being. After Gaul up to the Rhine had been pacified again, Roman efforts were again to make sure the Rhine border was secure in the long term. In today's Krefeld, for example, about 60 kilometers north of Cologne, a military camp was rebuilt and put into operation. This must have been around the year 370. The same applies to another military camp in today's Dormagen, in close proximity to northern Cologne. Further excavations show that the main roads in the region around Cologne were also renewed, and also the Hohestrasse, in Roman times it was called the Cardo Maximus, the Roman main street of Cologne, was repaired. The conquest of the Franks had left visible and even today archaeologically verifiable damage to the city. But it is precisely in this phase that the Praetorium, the seat of the Roman governor, was most magnificently expanded. Surely one did not do something like this if one did not believe in a further Roman future. Even if the city of Trier was the preferred residence of the emperors in the region, since the 3rd century almost every emperor had been to Cologne at least once in his life. And the Cologne Praetorium continued to present itself as a representative building of the Rhineland that was to represent Rome's power in the region. A huge octagonal assembly room, which already looks like the knight's hall of a medieval castle, dominated the center of the 90-meter-long building. At both ends, in the north and south, there was a half-round meeting hall. The late antique Roman building was thus one of the largest of its time north of the Alps. The architectural elements used there, along with numerous other influences, were to be adopted by later generations for the construction of churches. The architectural style of the so-called Romanesque period. But while we are on the subject of churches, the construction of the church of St. Gerion also falls into this late phase of the 4th century, later named after the same holy martyr Gerion who, according to legend, died in Cologne together with his Christian comrades. Like the Praetorium, this early Christian sacred building also had an octagonal central building with a large 24-meter-high dome in the middle. This made the church at that time one of the largest church buildings in Christendom. To have the time and the resources for such a construction project at that very time means that there was a certain period of peace at least during the time of the construction of the church between 360 and 375. The church of St. Gerion then, as now imposing, was interestingly built outside the Roman walls of the city. Thus, it was virtually unprotected from the city itself. This too is an indication that this time must have been comparatively peaceful. The name of the church itself probably did not bear the name of the present patron at that time, St. Gerion. That would happen a little bit later. The church underwent numerous alterations in later centuries. However, the central octagonal building in the middle has remained throughout. With that same infamous legendary blood column I talked about a few episodes before. And no, we have not yet reached the point where I can tell you about the legend of this blood column. There is a great model of the church building in the 4th century, which I hope to be able to put as a photo in the companion post of this episode, stating the Creative Commons attribution. I am talking about the church of St. Gerion all the time. Well, I already said that it probably did not have the name of the later patron at this time. But also the function of this building is not proven beyond doubt 
for the early period. Was it really a classical church, or was it intended as a memorial for an important person or family because it was built near a graveyard after all? Well, since we do not yet know for sure, this will have to be clarified in research. Later sources from the 6th century report numerous facings of marble in the interior, with granite columns and a magnificent decoration with golden ornaments. The beautiful thing is, of the antique central octagonal room of the dome, some of the first 16.5 meters are still in the antique original, despite alterations and World War II. This makes St. Gerion one of the best preserved ancient buildings in Cologne. Besides the Praetorium, the Roman water line, the sewer, parts of the city wall, and some Roman watchtowers, of course. In general, we have to assume that already several years of peace were enough for the contemporaries of that time to feel safe again in the Cologne lowland to build a church like that. I think that the year 2020 shows us how quickly conditions that were supposedly always taken for granted can change abruptly, for better or for worse. Many people had certainly also adapted to the often uncertain situations. Attacks and raids by hostile Germanic tribes were of course an evil, but as bizarre as it may sound, as a human being you could also get used to something like that. We know of estates that were massively fortified and even maintained their own small private armies in the countryside. Also, the not small group of Frankish settlers who now lived in the Roman Rhineland with the permission of Rome, certainly knew how to defend themselves against gangs of thieves from the right side of the Rhine. After all, they themselves had often followed this craft in the past. Let us take a short look at the entire Roman Empire, to which Cologne belonged again after the one-year rule of the Franks in 355 to 356. At the end of the 4th century, the Roman Empire was divided permanently into two parts, this was not intended at first. Of course it was still one empire and not meant as two separate empires, but in the long run it developed exactly to this, to an empire that was now divided into east and west. Cologne as well as the former capital Rome belonged to the western part of the empire. Milan and Trier continued to serve as capitals and residences of this western empire. So it was still clear that with the presence of the imperial power in Trier in today's western Germany, it was absolutely not in the Romans' interest to abandon this region or even give in. Rome would live on and triumph as always. Well, at least for now. I don't want to lose myself deeply in Roman history again. Nevertheless, we have to take a closer look at one aspect. Where exactly was the division between the East and Western Roman Empire, and what effects did it have? This division of the empire seems quite fair on a map. The division runs right through the middle of the Balkans, and geographically it divides the empire quite well in terms of landmass. But it was still an unequal distribution. The Eastern Empire had much better chances of survival with the Eastern Mediterranean and its new and impregnable capital of Constantinople, today's Istanbul in Turkey. In the eastern part, so today's Greece, Turkey, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel and Cyprus lived two-thirds of all inhabitants. There was a much higher density of cities and the most important trade routes of the world at that time converged here. Here in the east, the population was more Christianized than in the west. 
but also more Roman and Greek cultivated. The western part of the empire, so to speak, today's Western Europe, with parts of Northern Africa, had much worse chances of survival. First of all, the much lower number of inhabitants, a much less Romanized population, much less urban structures. And especially the latter is decisive. Roman culture, technology and power were based on structures that were only available or effectively implemented in cities. Not surprisingly, Rome itself had risen to world size as a former city-state and therefore drew much from its experience as a former city-state. The borders of the Western Roman Empire is an additional complicating factor. The western part of the empire had to defend a thousand kilometer long border along the great European rivers Rhine and Danube. Both are ranked first and second among the longest rivers in Europe if one disregards the far-flung rivers in present-day Russia, which we can because this region never belonged to the Roman Empire. If even one enemy managed to enter the western part of the empire at any point of this long border, the intruder could move almost freely. If one reached the Rhine or Danube, it was not difficult to get further into Gaul, Spain or even Italy, which barbarian invaders were soon to succeed in doing. The Eastern Empire in turn had either high mountains like the Balkans, a shorter eastern part of the Danube region or the Mediterranean Sea as well as deserts at its borders as natural barriers against external invaders. Remember my earlier episodes, how often had troops from the eastern part of the then still United Roman Empire helped Cologne and the surrounding area out of the crisis against usurpers or foreign invaders. This continued to be the case. The Jura, both parts of the empire were united and allied with each other. If the western part asked the eastern part for help, surely help would come? But of course, the eastern Roman emperor would think twice before he could really do without troops at this time. If you understand what I mean. So much for that. The overall Roman situation at the end of the 4th century. Only as a small spoiler to conclude this topic. These observations I have made here are not just made up. History will show this soon. The Western Roman Empire would only live for a few decades and then cease to exist. The eastern part of the empire would continue to exist as a Byzantine Empire for another 1000 years. Back to Cologne. I had already mentioned that it was probably already under the reign of Constantine the Great from the year 300 onwards that new building land was probably developed east of the city of Cologne. But east of the city? How can that be possible? Isn't there a side arm of the Rhine to the east of Roman Cologne? That would get your feet wet, wouldn't it? Well, yes, but the fact that there was new building land available there was due to the fact that the area of the sidearm of the Rhine had become silted up over the centuries. The Romans had probably used the area between the Rhine island and the mainland as a garbage dump. This is shown to us by excavations in the area which we now call the actual old town of Cologne. In Caesar's time, 400 years earlier in 58 BC, we would still have got wet feet there or would have drowned. If you can't imagine that visually now, I have an idea. Just have a look at the companion post of this episode on the historyofcologne.wordpress.com. There I have a corresponding picture. This is exactly where we see a major infrastructural measure at the end of the 4th century. 
In one episode, we devoted ourselves entirely to the water and sewage system of Roman Cologne. Of course, the canals of the sewers ended far earlier in the then still existing side arm of the Rhine. This would have meant that the people in the newly developed eastern part of the city would literally have had the sh and the sewage flushed at their feet. So the sewer which ran under the harbour street near today's Cologne Cathedral nowadays was lengthened and even lowered on the ground. Afterwards, the street above it was completely restored and renewed. During the construction work, however, a coin probably fell out of the pocket of a Roman worker. Because a corresponding archaeological find under the newly laid harbour street and the foundations brought to light a coin from Emperor Gratian. This Roman emperor need not to be important for us. However, since he ruled in the years from 375 to 383, the construction of this big infrastructure project cannot have taken place before the year of 375. Another example of how archaeology can help us to better understand history. Especially in times like these when there are so few sources and almost nothing has been handed down in writing to us. Yes, well, you might think so. They have just repaired a road and put a canal underneath. What is so special about it? Such a large infrastructure project requires a high degree of engineering, skill, money and organizational talent. While in this phase there is general talk of the decline of the Roman Empire, around the year 401 example, Roman rule in Britain is largely abolished, the Romans just leave the island, an active and intact Roman urban society is still at work in Cologne. And those who believe that the end is near or think they have to fight to survive would not bother with something like the construction of sewers after all. So you can see how much of our view of history is influenced by our retrospect and its later results. For the people of Cologne at that time, their city had already been a Roman metropolis for 400 years. How could they have known back then that the Roman period would be over just two or three generations later? So the second half of the 4th century represented a last, peaceful and quiet phase of Roman Cologne, compared to what had happened in the 3rd century or in the year 355. It had long since ceased to be a golden age for Cologne, but at least the city was largely at peace. In addition to the mostly Gallo-Roman population, Franks were increasingly recruited or settled on the fortified estates and settlements around Cologne. They took over many tasks. In addition to agriculture, they were also responsible for border security and military service. However, Romanization of the Franks did not take place as it did with the Ubii 400 years earlier. For this, the Roman Empire was too much in crisis mode, exhausted in manpower and in defensive combat on all fronts of its empire. In the neighboring province of Cologne, in Upper Germania and the area around Mainz, on the other hand, the Germanic Alemanni continued to do their attacks. The city of Trier to the west of Mainz also suffered noticeably from the unrest in the region. Around the year 407, Trier was abandoned as an imperial seat of power by the empire. The seat of the imperial palace was moved far into further southwest Gaul to what is now Allais on the present French Mediterranean coast. Trier never fully recovered from this. It would not take long for Cologne to become the most important city in the region again. 
Trier had flourished by its status as an imperial seat of government, but that was now gone. But it is this rapid decline of this city from the early 5th century onwards that makes Trier a paradise for fans of the Roman Empire. It would take up until the 11th century before Trier had a comeback in the High Middle Ages. Visit the city of Trier when you have the time, it is totally worth it. Let's leave it for today with this episode. If you also look at the playtime of this episode, you will notice that it is not quite as long as the ones before. There is a reason for that. No, I'm not lazy, but a storm is coming up that will sweep over the entire late antique world. If I had started this topic in this episode already, we would not have found an end at all here. And this episode might have taken us 90 minutes. For example, I cannot talk about Saint Severin without talking about Arbogast, and I can't talk about Arbogast without explaining the Huns, Attila, and the time of the migration period. This sounds all confusing and strange to you? Well, you see, we'd better dedicate a separate episode to all these topics. For plundering Germans were one thing, but the real danger threatening the Roman Empire and ultimately our Cologne came from very far in the east of the empire. In 378, the people in Cologne received the news that the Roman Emperor Valens had fallen in the battle against the Goths near the present city of Erdirne in what is now the European part of Turkey. Rome's entire army had been annihilated in this single battle. This battle against the Goths was not the reason why Rome fell eventually, but it would start the last act that would lead to it. What had caused the Germanic Goths, who once lived far away from the Roman Empire and far away from Cologne as well, to suddenly appear in eastern Thrace, almost on the Bosporus itself, in today's Turkey? It must have been something terrible that must have convinced them to this long march south. Indeed, this terrible something were the Huns. This Central Asian people on horseback will also deeply mark Cologne in its history. <coughs> really, really deeply. And we will come to that in the next episode, among other topics. When Cologne is drawn into the whirlpool of events of the migration period. Thank you for listening and, as always, Auf Wiedersehen. And check out my homepage for more information uh, about the episodes and learn how to support this podcast if you want to. You don't have to, but it would be nice. Thank you. Dankeschön. Bye-bye.